to the book of Acts, chapter 19, the book of Acts, chapter 19, and this morning, I want to preach a message entitled, Revival and Riot in Ephesus, Revival and Riot in Ephesus. And in Acts chapter 19, look at what it says in verse 18, 19, and 20. And many that believed came and confessed and showed their deeds. Many of them also, which used curious arts, brought their books together and burned them before all men, and they counted the price of them and found it 50,000 pieces of silver. So mightily grew the word of God and prevailed. Father, for the next few moments as we minister this word, we do need you to speak to all of our hearts. We love you. We appreciate how powerful this word is and what we do need and desire to see a revival in this area. And we want our church right in the middle of it, God. We want there to be a glorious outpouring of your spirit. In Jesus' mighty name, and everyone said, Amen. I can remember as a young man the first time I opened up some of the letters and the journals of John Wesley, the founder of the Methodist Church. I was really just caught up with all of his journeys and travels. How could a man climb up on a horse and ride across England and preach the gospel to thousands of people like he did. He preached outdoors to 5,000, 6,000, 7,000, 20,000 people. And his journals would tell the stories of how in the 18th century, the sinners would fall down on their faces and tremble and cry. People that were what he believed full of the devil, fall out on the mountainsides, having fits. He talked about people laying there shaking and trembling in the outdoors simply because they heard the Word of God preached to them. That man, I honestly believed, that he and his movement kept back apostasy in England for over a hundred years because he had so many men and women that traveled and preached. If it teaches us anything, it shows us that if God begins to move in a particular area, a revival, and people with the touch of God on their life can hold back the encroachment of darkness when it's trying to get in there. Now in this chapter 19, this is one of those chapters that's filled with excitement and intrigue. In fact, you can look and see in the first few verses, we've got baptisms in water baptisms in the Holy Spirit. You can also see in this chapter belief and unbelief. You can see miracles in verse 11 and 12. There's the presence of the demonic that Paul deals with in the name of Jesus. There's even an imitation. People are trying to be like Paul and casting out devils. But you can also see how that the witches brought their stuff and set it on fire. In this one particular town, because of Paul's preaching, the people rose up to kill Paul 
and the Christians. So there was revival and riots simultaneously in this one particular city. Now, sometimes God will allow a city to become a theater for his power and for persecution. You take a look at Jerusalem in the Bible. Some of the greatest miracles God did occurred in Jerusalem. But also some of the greatest persecutions occurred in that particular city. Let's not forget Mr. Jonah went to Nineveh and preaching in that city. The power of God came because this man preached the word of God. People repented. Sometimes God uses cities to become a place to showcase his strength and his ability. Over 120 years ago, a few hours away from here in Topeka, Kansas, some Bible college students had gathered in a big, huge mansion. They were studying the scriptures on New Year's Eve. God poured out the Holy Spirit, and those students began to speak with another language. It was powerful, just like in Acts chapter 2. Let's not forget that over in Los Angeles, on a street named Azusa, multitudes of people gathered together in an old place that was used for keeping farm animals. And God poured out his spirit there. And thousands of people were baptized with the Holy Spirit, speaking with other tongues, to the, the, the degree that people all around the world came to see what was taking place. Mr. Seymour, an old ex-slave, would stand there with a chicken crate over his head, humbling himself, didn't even want to be made visible in the midst of those meetings. And here you'd have everything from Asians, Caucasians, Hispanics coming to that little place, sitting in the presence and power of God. There was persecution. People tried to burn the place down over and over again. The editors of newspapers attacked them, just like they did the ones in Topeka. But nevertheless, God turned that city into a place where he showcased not only the power of God, but the persecution of the adversary. I think of that when I read this particular chapter, because in 19, God used Ephesus to be a place where everybody would know that he was there at work. Back in 1910, a man from Utica, Nebraska, went to Dallas, Texas. His name was F.F. Bosworth. He went down there, put up a tent, and that was a place where there was very little spiritual life, no spirit-filled churches. But he and his team began to pray and began to seek the face of God. As they prayed, the people in the surrounding areas were... Would, would come around them and mock them and laugh them because there they were up under a tent, a handful of them singing and praising God. But after about five months, God began to pour out his spirit as more and more people came to that tent. In the end, God sent a great revival to Dallas, Texas, because the man from Nebraska went down there trusting God. Well, Mr. Bosworth had found a book called The Acts of the Holy Ghost by uh, Mary Woodworth Etter. And so he, in reading that book, invited that young lady to come. Well, Mrs. Etter was born in Lisbon, Ohio, 1844, became a Christian at the age of 13. And at the age of 13, this would have been 18, 
57, had a vision of her standing in a field, and there were just grains of wheat falling all over the ground as she preached the gospel. And she heard a voice that said, Preach Jesus. You'll see this in your ministry. Well, she got married and was taking care of her family, still living for God, but hadn't launched out into preaching. God came to her again in a vision, and Jesus said to her in that vision, When are you going to go? She said, How can I go? I'm a woman, and this is an area that doesn't believe in women in ministry. How can I go? And the Lord spoke to her and said, You go, because I told you I'm sending you. Well, she said, Lord, I don't even understand the Bible. I haven't been trained in that way. And she said in that vision, she saw on the wall a beautiful Bible with the verses highlighted. And instantly she understood what the words meant. And Jesus said, will you go? She said, Lord, I'll go. Well, Mrs. Woodworth Adder then began to travel across this nation with a tent and with a team. She had some of the most astounding services. They'd last three or four hours, of course. But I was reading some of the old newspaper clippings from her visits to Ainsworth, Nebraska, and down in Kansas and in other places in Indianapolis, and they talk about in the newspaper the people that came that were deaf, blind, mute, crippled. And she'd lay hands on them with her team, and they'd pray, and they'd see people that were instantly made whole. They told the story about three people, one 54, the other 34, the other 17, born without the ability ever to see or to hear, and in front of everybody up on that platform, made whole. She traveled for more than 40 years all across this nation in a tent. And believe me when I tell you, the persecution against her was great as a woman. There were people that would come in the middle of the night and undo her tent pegs. People set her tent on fire. Some of them would physically assault her, but she would be right back the next day preaching Christ. In one city, the city elders, the leaders even took up an offering just to buy her another tent because the one that she had had been destroyed. She kept preaching. And one story after another continued to occur as she went from village to village preaching and enduring persecution. I have no doubt that there are a lot of people in the ministry today because of her. She died in 1924. I've never met anybody who was in her meetings, but I've preached for people whose parents were in her meetings. They tell the story of how she would yield and submit to the power of the Holy Spirit. Now, what is it then that would cause a lady to do that in the 19th century? What is it that would have caused Paul to do this in the first century? What caused such things in ancient Asia Minor? Well, you can see from Acts 19, verse 20, Paul preached the Word of God. And because he ministered that Word, the Word of God prevailed. It's important to know that. Now, Paul had spent, according to chapter 18, 18 months preaching in Corinth. And Corinth was a difficult place also. You can look there and you can see that in verse 12 there was an insurrection made against him because so many people were coming to know the Lord. And in Acts 18, verses 9 and 10, Jesus came to him in a vision and said, Paul, don't be afraid. Speak. Don't be quiet. I'm with you. And nobody's going to hurt you, for I have many people in this city. I think sometimes we forget that. 
We think we're the only ones walking with God. We think we're the only ones trusting God. And God's got a holy remnant, sometimes in hiding, that are willing to step out of the shadows when somebody proclaims the truth. They're just looking for somebody that'll believe and will set the trumpet to their mouth and begin to declare the word of the Lord. Eighteen months he spent there preaching Christ. And a small revolt took place, and Jesus came and appeared to him, and wonderful things occurred because of that. And you can tell from reading the book of Acts that Paul was a lightning rod for trouble. And he attracted as much glory as he did persecution. And when he ministered Christ, he was a conduit of one singular truth. Jesus Christ is the only way of salvation. Paul did not preach Jesus was one of several ways. He did not preach he was one of many ways. He preached that you can't get to the Father except you come through the Son. So the relationship then has to be through the Lord Jesus Christ. A lot of religions in this world today, all of us know people that are caught up in different faiths and beliefs. But those beliefs in comparison with Jesus Christ will pale because they don't matter. Paul made it very plain. There's one God, and that one God is Jehovah. That God sent his son into this world to die on the cross for your sins as well as for mine. In preaching salvation then, Paul showed us what the reformers taught us back in medieval times, that we're not justified by anything that we do, but we're justified by what Christ has done, to use their own words. They say men cannot be justified before God by their powers, merits, or works, but are justified freely for Christ's sake through faith when they believe that they're received into favor and that their sins are forgiven for Christ's sake, who by his death hath satisfied for our sins. This is the faith that's imparted to every believer. If I understand that then, I know that that man with that message came to Ephesus, and when he arrived, it was a stronghold for the goddess Diana. Who was Diana? She was the fertility goddess in the Greco-Roman pantheon of deities. If you've ever seen ancient statues that the archaeologists dug up, she had, she's portrayed with many breasts, rows of breasts across her front. They believed that she caused the soil to become fertile. In ancient Roman belief, she was a huntress. So anybody involved with fishing or any kind of hunting activity would pray to the goddess Diana, who was swift-footed, to come along and help them catch their prey. She had a temple that took more than 220 years to build. It was one of the great wonders of the ancient world, and there were thousands of people that worshipped this goddess. Paul comes into this city. He begins to preach the gospel, and he comes into this region expecting God to be the same in Ephesus as he was in Corinth. He knows there's no change in God. His faith was so strong that he expected God to do in that city what he did everywhere else. I think we should be the same. Let's not forget that it was on the island of Cyprus, Acts chapter 13. Paul was witnessing to a man, and a sorcerer tried to stop him from leading a man to Christ. 
And Paul said to that sorcerer, the hand of God is upon you. You're about to become a blind man. Suddenly he lost his sight because that man knew that he had power with God. But at the same time in Lystra, in Acts chapter 14, said there was a man crippled, lame in his feet, never had walked. But yet Paul stood up and said, I see faith in that man's countenance. He said, stand up on your feet. Instantly was made whole because of the power of God. So Paul comes to Ephesus now. And this man believes that the same God that helped him in all those other places is going to help him here. He trusted in God. Do you? Do you believe that same God is powerful? Now, I think when we talk about revival, that if anybody's going to spearhead it, if anybody's going to have it, there's certain things that has to precede revival. We very oftentimes preach the fruits of revival, joy, prosperity, peace, but we don't preach the things that produce revival, the cross, repentance, submission, death to self. But there are three things, and looking at this, I see that are essential for God to bring revival to any particular place. Number one, there's got to be a burden for God's Word. If people aren't interested in the Bible, then how in the world is God going to ever change a heart? If you look at the Scripture and treat the Bible the same way you treat an instruction manual or some other book that you read for light reading before you go to bed at night, there's no difference. But if you know this book is inspired, it's infallible, it's inerrant, this book contains everything you need for godliness and for a blessing in your life, then it'll change how you live. Once you hear truth and are confronted with truth, you have one thing to do, either receive it or reject it. If you receive it, you change your life. You amend your ways. If you reject it, you continue in the path in which you've been going. But once the Word of God has been presented to you, then that Word becomes a judge over your life. Every time you voluntarily come to church and you sit there on your own without anybody tying you up and keeping you there on that pew, you have voluntarily come to allow God's Word to judge you. And wherever you're innocent, that word will find you're guilty. Wherever that you're wrong, that book will find you guilty, I should say. And if you're innocent, you'll be not guilty. So the word of God then acts as a judge, and this is how revival comes. We amend our ways. I can see that my heart is wrong. I need to change. And the word of God has shined a light on that and turned and told me all about that. So there's a burden for God's Word. But secondly, there's a burden to pray. People that don't pray don't see God do much. You look in the Gospels, you follow the path of Jesus. Things are taking place in between those times of prayer. He's spending time with God, and as he seeks the face of God, we know what took place in between those prayer meetings. They came to the Apostle Paul, and the Lord had told Ananias, go to a certain house. He said, because Paul is praying right now. I want you to go. How long has it been since you really prayed and sought God? Can you remember when your grandparents prayed? Can you remember in old revivals when they called for prayer meetings before the service began? And people would want to be in that altar praying when the service was over. Everybody wasn't running for the burger joint as soon as the benediction was given. People were trying to get in that altar to yield to God, get filled with the Holy Ghost, and submit to God. 
There has to be a burden to pray. If he pours out a spirit of grace and supplication on a congregation, then that congregation wants to talk to God. Do you pray when you're in that bed? Do you pray when you're going down the road? Or is prayer just something you do before you have a meal and when you come to church? But if that's all the prayer that you have, you don't have much prayer in your life at all. Prayer for the Christian is what breathing is for the natural man and woman. You stop breathing, you die. You stop praying, you'll backslide. I can promise you that. You'll go in the wrong direction. But the third thing is to have revival in any human heart, there's got to be a burden for souls. Got to love people. You've got to want to see people saved. Now, I realize that, you know, folks get tired of people mentioning God to them, mentioning things to them about redemption. But I'm telling you right now, if we could pull back this carpet and God would give us a glimpse of all the folks right now in hell, there's not a man or woman that wouldn't want to sit through a service one more time just to be able to answer an altar call. As we sit here right now, we don't think about it. We don't meditate on it because there's too much anguish and agony involved with that. But you think of the millions of people that have died, lost, and as I'm preaching the gospel right now, they're in torments. A burden for souls. That person that's taking up that money at that cash register may be your cousin, but if he or she is lost, that's a soul, doesn't know God. That man that sits at the bar every night drinking, he may be somebody that you've grown up going to high school with and had a relationship with through the years, but that's still a soul that's lost, a burden for lost souls. To be able to pray and to seek God and to ask the Lord to change an environment. How does God change a community? One family at a time. How does he change a family? One person at a time. If we want to see a family change, we start with one person. I think one of the best ways to lead a family to Christ is get them children saved. Yeah, you get the children knowing God, get the children off to church, and pretty soon they're doing things in church. they got a program in church, and they're inviting mom and dad to church. Mom and dad come to church. They hear something that's going to touch them and change them. Sometimes you can do it with a husband. Men can work on other men that are unbelievers, invite them to a meeting. Then that man gets around men that are lifting their hands and worshiping God and loving God. And before you know it, he's realizing I've never been the kind of man I should be for my wife and for my kids. Same thing with women. Get a bunch of women with an unbelieving woman, invite her to a meeting. She comes and sits in the midst of people whose conversation is different, whose lifestyle and dress is different. And before you know it, she's thinking, wow, how, how can I have what it is that you have? A burden for souls. Burden for the word, a burden for prayer, a burden for souls will produce revival in the church, but someone has to be willing to pursue God in such a way to have this. This is what Paul had, a love and a life for God. A man I knew many years ago was preaching a revival back in the 50s. And church had invited him out there. It once was a good revival church, a few hundred people in there. It dwindled down to about 18, 20 people. 
And so he, he, he comes and he starts on a Sunday night. That's when the revival started in. Starts Sunday night, just went right on through for a whole week. And so he preached hard every night. After several nights, his, his wife said to him, said, well, well, Daddy, when are you going to pour in a little oil and wine? You've been preaching kind of hard at these folks. They, they need something going to kind of encourage them and comfort them. He said, well, honey, I'm, I'm trying. He said, but I'm, I'm preaching, but I, I haven't even wounded them. He said, the old axe head is bouncing off the trunk of the tree. I, I'm looking at him as I'm preaching. Nothing's penetrating. And, and so he, he said, I, I, I've just got to preach. And so a few days later, she asked him again, when are you going to give them some comfort, some peace, some ease? And, and he, he said, well, I, I'll do what I can. He said, communion's coming up next Sunday, or this coming Sunday. I'll preach a good communion message. And that'll be nice. Good message on the blood, forgiveness. They'll all be pleased with that. And so Saturday night, he lays down with his wife and kids. Four o'clock or so in the morning, he wakes up. God says to him, you won't break bread with anybody until you break it with me. So he knew what that meant. I've got to go to church and lay in that altar and talk to God and see what he wants me to say. He told his wife, he said, I'm headed to the church. Bring the babies. I'll see you there after a little while. A couple hours later, he's there in that altar. And around about 6.30 or 7 in the morning, God speaks to him and said, Your message this morning for that church will be 1 Peter 4.17. He quickly got his Bible, flipped it open, looked, and it said, Judgment must begin in the house of God. He said, Oh, Mama's not going to be too happy. Well, he said the church, more people, few more people had come out. That morning he said he got up to preach, and he said, he said it was almost like you turn on the spigot, water holes. He said he got up, started preaching, and he said he was just dealing with things you never would have thought anybody would have been dealing with in the 50s. He said he dealing with adultery, drunkenness, incest, all of that stuff in a church. And he said, for an hour and a half, he said, that water just poured out of him as he preached. He said, there were moments he thought he was like he was standing next to himself, watching himself, preaching, wondering why he was saying all of these things. And he said, just as fast as it started, God shut it off. And he said, when he was done, an hour and a half later, he said to those deacons, he said, now deacons, come on down, get us ready communion. Nobody moved. Place was silent. They were all just looking at him. He, he said again, he said, deacons, come on down, get us ready for communion. Nobody moved at all. He said he tried to look at his wife. She was sitting on the front row with his two babies, and he said she had her head down, but he wished she had her head up because he wanted to motion to her and said, let's just go right out the side door, and if they, if they owe us anything, they can mail it to us at the next location. But he said his wife was sitting there holding the babies, had her, had her head down. He said he turned and looked for the pastor because there were two chairs in the pulpit, one for the pastor, the other for that guest speaker. And you know how it is when you turn and you look, you're expecting to see someone who was where they were sitting earlier when you saw them. He turned, looked, he wasn't there, realized the pastor had come down out of the chair, got down on his belly, and climbed up under the chair and was laying there groaning like a man in pain. And so the evangelist got down on all fours, crawled up under that chair with him, and said, Pastor, 
I'm, I'm inviting these people to come and come to the communion table and the deacons and nobody's responding. He said, what, what's, what's going on here? And the pastor looked up at him with tears in his face and said, son, you killed us all. Killed us all. And that evangelist, he said to the pastor, well, what, what are we going to do? And the, the pastor said, well, we aren't going to do anything because I'm standing right here under this chair and groan and moan in the spirit. And that pastor said, I'm not leaving this spot. So the evangelist gets back up, and he said he'd made up in his mind. He's going to invite them one more time down to that communion table. He said, deacons, I'm asking you to come, please. Service communion. Said nobody came. He said, finally. He said, way back in the back, there was a man stood up, and he started stumbling down into that altar, and he screamed and yelled, and he said, I swore I'd starve you out. And he threw a wad of $100 bills at that pastor. And that man fell down in that altar and started groaning like a man passing gallstones. He's in so much pain. And one by one, people got up out of that church, out of their pews, and came and knelt and just began to pray. And there were people that were in that choir loft, girls that had been sleeping with the same boy, standing up repenting, asking God to forgive them, all because somebody came with a message to a church and it brought revival. That Sunday night, without any advertisement, that evangelist said he'd never seen it before, never saw it since. He said there was something like a cloud that descended in that sanctuary. He said so many people had come from every direction. They packed that place out with a, within four hours, people standing on the outside looking in to see what God was doing. Even a lady across the street who had lived there for years, she sent a messenger the next day and said, what's going on over there? I hadn't heard a peep out of you folks in 20 years. But now God's moving in that place. God brought revival because somebody came to speak the word of God, and God's spirit dealt with a heart that was hard and cold and broke up that fallow ground. However deep you believe somebody is in sin, I can promise you God can dig them up out of that. He can dig them up out of that. Paul comes to Ephesus. He's bringing the word of God. He wasn't intimidated by the environment or by the people. He knew inwardly he was bigger and stronger than all of these folks in Ephesus. He knew that he was stronger than all of the partisans of Diana. He understood that. But that man preached Christ. Now, 25, 26, 27 years ago, I had moved to Peru, and there was a, a man named Romulo Sanye who had just been murdered by a terrorist organization up in the mountains called Sendero Luminoso. And so they had written a, a book about him. I was reading the book, and I couldn't go to sleep that night. It just touched me, stirred me so much how he was murdered, his family was murdered, and other Christians had been killed, hundreds had been killed by this terrorist organization through the years. Well, they told about how they brought all of these folks to a village one time, marched all the inhabitants out there, brought some people out there and started shooting and murdering them one by one in front of everybody. One old man in his 90s came out there and said to them young terrorists, what you're doing is wrong and it's wicked, you shouldn't be doing this. man jumped down off his horse, cut the old man's tongue out. old man lay there on the ground, 
took a knife, plunged it into his chest, pulled his heart out and held it up for everybody to see in that village. Folks were terrified. But within a few months, their wickedness and violence was so bad that whole villages were swept into the kingdom of God. As the gospel was preached, people said, we'd rather serve God and go to heaven than live in fear on planet earth with this kind of wickedness with you up here in these hills. All because somebody took the gospel up there. And that book that I was reading had me broken. In the middle of the night, I said, where have I been all my life that somebody could suffer like this for Christ and tell people about the King and then watch as folks come to know the Lord? One life sown into the earth brought a harvest of a lot of people. Paul preached Christ in Ephesus, and in verse 18, it says, Many believed and came and showed the fruits of their repentance. Can you imagine how many witches and warlocks? brought all their books and had a bonfire. How much stuff was burning in the presence of all of these people? Now, why the uproar? Because Paul preached and folks were being saved. Look at verses 24 through 27. It tells us there was no small stir in that city, but a certain man named Demetrius, a silversmith, he made silver shrines for Diana and brought no small gain to the craftsmen. He called together the workmen of like occupation and said, Sirs, you know our craft. By our craft we receive our wealth. And you see in here that not alone at Ephesus, but all throughout Asia, this Paul is persuading and turning away a whole lot of people, saying there be no gods which are made with hands. So that not only our craft is in danger to be set at nothing, but also the temple of the great goddess Diana is being despised, and her magnificence is going to be destroyed, whom all Asia and the world worship in. So here's a man that, in a nutshell, is saying, look, this is hurting our bottom line. The more people that become Christian, the less money we can make off of their superstitions and fears. Have you ever thought about how much money is made off of religion? How much money is made off of religion? When I first came to this town many, many years ago, there was a man who used to visit folks. If they had a death in their family, he'd go right to their house, and he'd take up an offer and say, look, you've got a loved one that's in purgatory, and if you want to get them out, you've got to be able to give some money to me. Do you know how much money is made off of religion? The Muslims, they sit down with their little blue prayer beads, and they quote the 99 names of God as they say in their prayers, but somebody's making those beads. It's money Think of all the stained glass windows with pictures of idols and saints on them. And people come in various churches and bow before them and genuflect and pray to these saints. Somebody's making money off of people's fears. There's a lot of money involved with this. And Demetrius, he gets his union together. He says, we'll go broke if we let this man stay here and preach. Because he's telling everything that we don't want to be told. And if we don't have some kind of a change quickly, there's going to be a difficulty. And verse 28 says, they listened to Demetrius, and the people were full of wrath. Have you ever really seen a crowd of people angry? A crowd of people. Thousands of people. Or oh, you've, you've seen people running through the streets in the summer of 2020, burning 
things down. But, you know, you, you saw marching in the streets making all, all kinds of noise. But I'm talking about people really filled with wrath. Have you ever seen the pictures from Lebanon when the Shiite Muslims take a knife and cut the blood, cut their forehead, and the blood is running down, and they're shouting death to America, and they're shouting there is no God but God, and Muhammad is the prophet of God. Wrath. You ever seen the Hindus, the ones that run around their own villages setting Christian churches and Christian huts on fire because they don't want believers that preaching the gospel and telling them that there are more than one million gods are false, filled with wrath, anger. You turn that television on and you see these crazy people attacking Christians today, thinking of every kind of new name they can for us that love Jesus Christ. And if they had an opportunity, they'd blow your brains out just because you love Jesus. Don't you be mistaken. They'd put you on some island all by yourself where you wouldn't have anybody to talk to but somebody who's a Christian. Full of wrath. But verse 29 says they also were, the whole city was filled with confusion. Filled with confusion. And that's an interesting phrase. People that are confused don't know what they're doing. It's, it's almost like when people have been bused to D.C. and paid to protest and to carry signs and placards, and they don't even know what they're protesting. Yeah, utter confusion. That's what we're talking about. Every town, every village, every city in America and around the world is one, per one person away from a move of God or a revival. But every town, every village is also one person away from a riot. You get the right person to say the right thing. You can inspire the wrong kind of actions, but if you get the right person preaching the right thing, you can inspire something totally different. And multitudes of people come to know God if the gospel is proclaimed. I think of that great awakening back in the 18th century, the 1720s and 30s, Wales was a dead place. It's very little taking place. It was just a spirit of lethargy over that whole nation. People weren't interested in God. Churches were empty, beautiful church buildings. Saloons and bars were full. People weren't singing hymns, but they were involved with every other kind of thing you could think of. But in 1735, Howell Harris became a Christian. A young man, about 21, immediately felt a call to preach the gospel. Started preaching in homes. Pretty soon, homes weren't big enough for him to preach. He started preaching outdoors in Wales, along the hillsides, in the valleys, telling folks about the king, his message was the wrath of God, and prepare for your death and the judgment, because you're one day going to face this God. And he preached that. I'm telling you, those folks were nervous. People were terrified. Folks were crying out to God. They were being awakened to the status of their soul, to their spiritual condition. Man preached so hard, so strong, had a pistol discharged at him one time when he was out preaching in the open air. People came to him, tried to take his life. One of his assistant ministers was stoned to death in Wales because he preached the gospel. So when you consider all that he endured, it was because he trusted God. But the nation saw revival ultimately because somebody held fast and dealt with sin according to how the Bible says it ought to be dealt with. 
You listen to preachers today, they'll tell you you ought to be a coach, you ought to be inspirational, you ought to be a mentor. Don't talk about the cross, don't mention sin, don't talk about hell, don't talk about repentance. Just speak about things that will make people feel good about themselves and be pleasantly disposed toward God. Make God to be a giver or a genie, but don't tell anybody about the wrath to come that one day they're going to face God. But do you realize up and down this valley we've got thousands of people that are lost? And they don't need more sugar. They need to know what the book says. If we hear what the book says, then men and women can come to a place of repentance. But it has to begin with us. Revival has to start inside of us. It's like that old hymn says, let the revival begin in me. See, If God can't change us individually, how in the world is he ever going to change us as a community or change this region? But if we want God to pour his spirit out, there's got to be people hungry for him. And they want to submit more of their life to God. How much of yourself are you willing to give to God? Paul said to them folks in Ephesus, have you even received the Holy Spirit? They said, oh, my God, hadn't even heard about any kind of Holy Ghost. He said, well, how were you baptized? Told them. Paul laid his hands on them pretty soon. They came through one by one, 12 of them, speaking with other tongues. Say, that's the gateway into greater blessings that God has for you. There's never been a sin the blood of Jesus can't handle. Never been an illness the name of Jesus isn't greater than. There's never been a heart that God can't change. And when you think of where you were and where you are now, you ought to be grateful for who God is. But whatever the condition of your soul today, I'm telling you right now, I wouldn't want to put my head down on the pillow not being right with God. And I wouldn't want to let another month go by without me sitting in God's house hearing God's word. Anybody can be lukewarm. Anybody can be complacent and compromising. But to be able to say, God, I'm hungry for more of you. And for you that are here today, if you've been saying, I, this is what I want, Pastor, this, this is what I desire. I want God to put a fire on this candle. I want God to put a double scoop of ice cream on this coal. I need God. Give me the Holy Ghost in a powerful way. He can do it today. He can do it today. He can put in your life what it is that you desire. But he's never going to give you anything you don't want. Yeah. But if you're saying God, Start a fire down in my soul. You know, he'll do it for you. Let's stand. Let's stand. Maybe you're here this morning. You say, Pastor, I've read through that Bible a thousand times, and I've seen where them saints are getting filled with the Holy Spirit, and I certainly do want to be baptized with the Holy Spirit the same way them folks were filled with the Holy Spirit in the Bible, and that's what I desire. That's you today. We want to pray for you. Yeah. You want a special touch from God? You want to believe that God can touch you physically and maybe give you the miracle that you desire? And why don't we pray and ask God to do that? Yeah. Tiff, you can find us a song, sugar. He's a God that's able to do that. He can change anything in anybody just like that. If you're in here and your heart's not right with God, You've been going through the motions and you aren't where you need to be with God. Don't you leave here today 
without being where you need to be with God. Doesn't matter how young, how old we are, all heads bowed, eyes closed right now. If you say, Pastor, that's me. I've heard that message. I need to be in earnest. I'm in a backslidden condition, but I do know that today needs to be my day. And I want it to be my day. Would you slip your hand up right now? If you're away from God.